0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Breakfast with Boz being served by Oahu. I am your host, Ian Boswell, standing over our wood cook stove this morning, sizzling away some sweet potatoes and onions, getting ready to throw some eggs in to make a Spanish tortilla from the Feed Zone cookbook written by one of our guests who you'll be hearing from later in the show. This really takes me back to my days of racing in Spain. I loved the hotel buffets when they had a Spanish tortilla at breakfast. Being an American, I always put ketchup on it. I know, probably a cardinal sin, but I love ketchup. We didn't have any potatoes for this particular recipe, so we used some sweet potatoes, making it Ian's Spanglish tortilla. So I hope you all can try this recipe at home. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. Today's episode is all about health and nutrition over the holidays. And to discuss these topics, I have brought in two fabulous guests. The first is Dr. Alan Lim, who's a sports physiologist out in Colorado. Many of you will be familiar with Alan. He has spent a long time in the U.S., working with some of our finest athletes. Alan is also one of the co-founders of Scratch Labs. He's written numerous cookbooks, including the Feed Zone Cookbook, which my breakfast recipe came from this morning. So I was happy to speak to Alan, reconnect, and talk about how to stay healthy and well-fed over these holiday months. And my second guest is celebrity chef Chris Cosentino. Who is a cyclist himself, used to race back in the day, now spends more time in the kitchen cooking, but still loves to get out on his bike and ride. And I pitch a very difficult question to Chris. I give him a secret ingredient. And like the TV show Iron Chef, Chris comes up with a recipe and he shares it with us. And I will be honest, I actually did make this recipe the other night. So, I hope you can all sit back, relax, and get your belly and immune system ready for another episode of Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo, my first guest, Dr. Alan Lim. I'm joined by old friend and recently reacquainted friend in in the endurance world, Alan Lim. Alan, thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, um, you won't have heard it yet because I just recorded it, but I did make the Spanish tortilla from the Feed Zone cookbook this morning. Yes. Well, oh. actually, I, I have to make a confession. I called it the, the Spanglish tortilla because I made it with sweet potatoes because we didn't have any potatoes in our house. Oh, that works.
1: That works. You know, the the key ingredient there is eggs. And I know that you've got eggs.
0: We have lots of eggs. Yeah. Now that the temperatures are uh, dropping, the chickens are a little bit less productive, but we still are getting more eggs than we can possibly eat in in a week. So yeah, we've got a a plethora of eggs and it was a great way to use them up.
1: Yeah. Did you feel like you're back in Spain eating that breakfast this morning?
0: Well, I did. And I mentioned that in the intro. I said, I feel like I'm back in Spain. And one thing that I admitted that I, uh, I love ketchup. So I did, I didn't use ketchup on, on my tortilla this morning, but I did put a little sriracha mayo on top.
2: Oh, that's
1: so good. I put, I put ketchup on my tortillas all the time. Good.
0: Good. I mean, eggs and potatoes, you got to go with ketchup. Yes, indeed. Well, you have a degree in sports physiology, so you're the perfect person to ask some of the questions I have for you today around, around staying healthy and over this kind of the transitional period between, you know, training, colder weather, and you're also a chef. You've written a couple of cookbooks. So, I mean, I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you is at what kind of point in, you know, fundamental nutrition and physiology do nutrition and training, where do they cross? If you're looking at a graph, I mean, where do nutrition and physiology cross paths?
1: You know, I don't, I don't know if they cross paths, but I think that they're legs on a stool, right? And if one leg falls off, you're screwed. So maybe that's another way to look at it, right?
0: Yeah, well, and it's something that, you know, you've really implemented, you know, around the world, but especially in North America, you kind of, you came into the sport and you know, for a long time, especially in the sport of cycling, there was a a lack of knowledge of nutrition. It was very much, okay, well, what did Eddie Merckx do? It's like, well, he ate steak and and pasta. Well, that's maybe not the best diet for an endurance athlete. And you brought all these new ingredients and kind of new techniques, but all while keeping it very healthy and balanced and, you know, a rounded diet is the most important thing for for any athlete, I mean, what kind of, you have a lifetime of cooking?
1: Well, I, I'll say this, I'll, I'll back up a little bit and say that when I came into the sport of cycling, it was not as much that there was a lack of knowledge as there was a lack of skill, and that there was also maybe some complacency or laziness, especially amongst staff members. You know, we were entering this very technocentric age of sports nutrition when I came into cycling, where, you know, ideas around prepackaged foods and quote-unquote power bars and you know specifically tailored or manufactured sports nutrition was at a, a high point. And so I think that a lot of folks thought that, hey, we just need to put this powder in this water or we just need to open up this bar or we just need to do this or that. And our nutritional needs will, will, will be met because there are these smart you know scientists or manufacturers out there who are designing these products for us. But what I kind of realized that what was fundamentally missing was maybe a more of a cultural basis of food, the ethnocentric basis of food. You know, so you get into the European pro tour and you have people from all sorts of cultures who identify with all sorts of different types of foods and they're all different, right? And you can't, you know, you scratch your head there and you're like, who's right? Who's wrong? And everyone's right as long as there maybe is... Uh, that kind of return to you know the kitchen the return to to, to making your, your your food from scratch using whole food ingredients etc and that's effectively what I tried to bring back into the the working peloton meaning that like you know maybe maybe those ideas were were still existent around the dinner table but they certainly weren't you know within within the race or within the training ride right and so I kind of leaned into my own uh, cultural heritage and a lot of the foods that I was making for these riders at that point in time were basically old you know kind of hybrid chinese recipes you know or meals right you know hence the rice cooker right and and you know rice and eggs and rice cakes and a lot of rice man yeah. not to say that like rice was 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 like the scientifically perfect grain to be using or carbohydrate to be using, right? It was, you know, actually in a lot of cases like, you know, the basic, you know, Chinese rice with, you know, some incredible olive oil from Italy or whatever, you know, instead of the bacon I would use in the States, it would be prosciutto in Europe or whatever, right? It it
0: was interesting. Well, it's funny you kind of mentioned that using whole and kind of, you know, pure ingredients because I remember, I can't remember if it was tour California in twenty. 12 or maybe his tour Colorado the year after, but you were doing the race food for, for all the riders and you had made some cookies. Yeah. And I came up to you and I was like, Alan, these cookies are phenomenal. Like they, they taste yeah. like, like a real cookie. And yeah. I said, what's, what's in them? And you're like, well, it's, it's flour, butter and sugar. And I was like, really? And you, and, and you made, you, stated something that stuck with me throughout my career. And it's, you know, the best food to be carrying with you is the food you actually want to eat. And of course, if you have a you know a chocolate chip cookie in your pocket, you're gonna eat it. And I think that, you know, really resonated with me. And I think with so many other people, there's no point in carrying something in your pocket that you're not gonna eat.
1: Yeah. And and I also think that people forget that food is about context. So there is no such thing as a bad food, just maybe bad behavior in the in the wrong time and place. So a cookie when you're sitting on your butt on the couch. Could be a food that is not good for you, but when you're in the middle of the tour of California, right, racing a bicycle, it could be the, the, the the one bite that makes all the difference in the world, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and that's true. It's like you know, you can feel you want to carry something that you want to eat, and and it goes. You know, it's the same thing when you get back from a ride, you know, and you know, your cookbooks kind of definitely emphasize being prepared. And I think preparedness when it comes to nutrition is so important. The last thing you want is to come inside from a six hour training rod and not know what you're going to eat. And that's when you can nutritionally make poor decisions and, you know, go for the easiest, quickest thing rather than, you know, your rice cooker's already going, you have, you know, a can of tuna, you have chicken in the fridge and a salad already made up and you're, you're set and ready to go.
1: But, but even then, you know, let's, let's even talk about something like the glycemic index, right? Like most people will say, Hey, Avoid these, you know, simple carbohydrates or simple sugars because they're they'll they'll quickly increase your your, your blood sugar, cause an insulin spike, and everyone knows that that can be kind of ruinous. And you know, all of a sudden you're going to be a type two diabetic. Well, you know that's true if you're not exercising, if you're not working out. But if you just get back from a, a bike ride, right? You want that simple sugar. You want that high glycemic. Uh, or recovery food, you want to spike your insulin because all of those things can actually improve your recover. Your carb recovery can help enhance the resynthesis of glycogen, etc. And so it's very um, paradoxical that a lot of the things that are really good for our athletic performance may actually be bad for us metabolically. You know, in a, a life that isn't athletically driven. So the activity matters as much as the food we eat, and maybe. You know, you talk about this intersection between physiology and nutrition. Well, the context is how much training, how much work, etc. And as we, they could almost be diverging because as we scale our activity in one direction, the foods that might help fuel our performance and keep us healthy might be the foods that we want to stay away from when we lessen our activity.
0: When you've always had a very practical approach to everything, you know, to training, nutrition, racing, do you have kind of like a fundamental statement or kind of rules to live by when it comes to to training with you know incorporating your nutrition into training or racing
1: Mm, i got a lot of rules i got a lot of ideas and i think that you know for me sometimes it's hard to pick out the stage piece of advice that's going to help everyone because I tend to look for bottlenecks when I talk to a person, right? And everyone has a different bottleneck. Everyone has a different life situation that maybe inhibits them from doing what they need to to do. Rarely is it a lack of knowledge. You know, for example, I tend to believe that the, 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 the best set of knowledge that you have as an athlete or as a person is self-knowledge. We tend to know intuitively the foods that make us feel really good and the foods that make us feel really bad. And I see a lot of people consciously say to themselves, like, I'm gonna have this donut. I know I'm gonna feel like crap after I eat this donut, but I'm going for it because I can't help myself, right? Um, And it is like in the wrong context. I think like the first and foremost thing I would say about it is that like, hey, we all know what's good for us and what's bad for us, what is it in your life that is stopping you from making those right decisions, you know? Um, oftentimes, especially around food, which is complex because it, it's also uh, connected to our emotional well-being and to our social well-being, there are reasons why we why we eat something that have nothing to do with our performance or our need for nutrition, right?
0: Well, and that's kind of, you know, why I'm talking to you now is because, you know, the holidays are just around the corner and this is a time of year when, you know, most people indulge, they switch off that, you know, kind of mental, you know, guard of like, all right, I should be eating this, or I want to be eating that. And they eat what's available, what's kind of socially and culturally of the season. How, how can an athlete approach the holidays to make sure that, you know, they're still enjoying themselves, but they are, you know, embracing this kind of very unique time of year?
1: Oh man, that's such a hard question. I, I, I think that it's a harder question for me to answer right now because of the context that we're in and that, you know, everything is just different now, right? I think that, yes, the holidays do lend us to want to be more social, to want to eat with folks, to indulge. And to a certain extent, I think that that's all really, really great and that's good. And we do have to have periods in the season where we actually relax a little bit and uh, not be so hard on ourselves. Uh, that being said, I think that one of the rule sets that I have is always remember that, you know, indulgence is always best after activity, right? And so even if you can get a little bit of exercise, go out for a walk, go out for a, a, a you know, a, a hike, you know, depending upon the weather, you know, just get some activity before you have that big meal and to anticipate or work that into your schedule. I know that that can be kind of a, you know, very privileged way of looking at, at, at one's life. But, you know, when I get around my uh, friends and family for the holidays, in the back of my head, I'm always thinking to myself, okay, how do I work in some activity before we go out, out to dinner or have a family meal and pick out? right?
0: Well, that's actually, that was a question I asked one of our nutritionists at Team Sky back in the day, you know, there was, he was open for questions. And I was like, well, you know, if I'm going to have a night when I go out and eat, eat a bunch and maybe have a couple of drinks, is that better to do either before a big ride or after a big ride? And his response was it's better to never do it at all. And I was like, well, you know, that kind of, you know, that's, that's not what I was looking for. So, so your advice would be, you know, on, you know, before the holidays or, you know, specific days of of the year when you know, there's going to be, you know, an excess of food to make sure you're exercising prior to, you know, indulging rather than, you know, saying, okay, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and and do a long bike ride or ski or hike or run whatnot.
1: Yeah. I I think if you would ask me that question, I would say either way, it is about, it is about mindset and you can, you can choose your own adventure there, right? And that we, you know, in the normal context of a season, will carbo-load or will eat more before a big race day. We'll also do the same thing after, you know, a big training day, right? And so I think that you can kind of almost create a little bit of a world in your own mind around, around the food you eat and actually, you know, seek that time as a reward and not forget about the context of your activity, but maybe you know, in the wintertime, you haven't been working out as much. And so, you know, before that Christmas dinner, you know, make that workout or the workout the day after like the two big workouts of of that off season, right? I mean, why not, right? I think the other thing too is uh, there's always this kind of idea that you don't have to stuff yourself to really enjoy other people's company. And I think that what's very interesting about eating in big groups or eating socially is that it, it is normative, meaning that if you tend to not be a person who eats a lot, you will tend to eat more, meaning you'll kind of move up towards the group. And if you're someone actually who tends to overeat on their own, when you eat with people, you tend to eat less. It's, it's very interesting how the, the group tends to normalize how people eat a little bit, right? The best cultures in the world tend to gather all the time to eat, so they're, they're consistently you know, kind of maybe engage in social eating. But one of the key features of these communities is that if you ask them how full they are after a meal, uh, they'll, compared to, say, you know, Western culture, there may be only about 80% as full, right? Wow. Um, That's interesting. And I think that there is this notion that it's more about spending time with people and engaging in those conversations and being able to enjoy one another's company than it is just about stuffing ourselves, right? And so you can hang out at the table and make yourself a a normal plate and get up to 90% full, we'll compromise here, and still be a okay, right? It's about consistency more than anything.
0: Yeah, well, and and you know, saying that, I I realize I am someone who, by myself, I I overeat. But you know, largely when I'm by myself, I I eat a lot of you know vegetables and fruit, so I'll you know really fill up on you know those type of things. And I go to a dinner with someone, and we're eating a more you know carb-heavy diet, and I'm, I'll come home and be like, oh, I'm hungry. Like, I did not eat nearly <laughs> as much as, as I would have if I was, you know, by myself or just at home with my wife. And that, that's interesting how you do kind of eat to the, to the group's expectations almost.
1: Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, especially as an athlete like yourself who burns so many calories, if someone actually saw you eat what you calorically needed, it would be freaking bizarre.
0: Yeah. Well, and you always feel a little bit strange, like, oh, I'm going to go back up for thirds now. And they're like, wait, I'm still working on my first plate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It can be awkward. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Think about how you build your plate. Think about making sure that there is a lot of variety on that plate, you know, and that's maybe one of the luxuries of holiday meals is that people are making a lot of different things. And nutritionally, that's ends up being very important. And if you can load that, you know, on the side of more, you know, vegetables, more fiber, etc. you'll feel more full without getting in as many
0: calories. Yeah, easier to go for the, um, yeah, the Brussels sprouts than, than the cookies and, and pie afterwards. That's right, that's right. Well, and, you know, we are kind of entering, depending on where you live, you know, a colder time of the year and how, you know, personally, you, I feel sometimes when it, the temperatures get colder, I just feel more hungry, but I'm yeah. not necessarily always exercising more. You know, how does the body shift and adapt when when temperatures drop when you're especially when you're training outside and you know this morning here it's 19 degrees and i was like oh maybe i'll go out for a fat bike ride later you know nutritionally how do you need to change your diet with you know the colder temperatures that most of us are experiencing now
1: yeah one of the interesting things about cold especially if you do feel cold and you're exercising in the cold is that you shift at any given intensity more towards carbohydrate right and so the, the muscle glycogen that you have on board, your, your, your need for eating sugar or carbohydrate in real time to maintain blood sugar becomes more important. And so one of the key things, if you are going out and exercising in, in the cold is to make sure that you've got food with you. You may not necessarily have to worry about trying to, you know, eat more ahead of those activities. Uh, but you definitely don't want to be caught out because I can tell you bonking in cold weather is a lot more dangerous and a lot more severe and comes on a lot quicker than say bonking in warmer weather.
0: So even if you've just had, you know, an enormous Christmas dinner and the next day you're I'm going to go out for a long ride, still make sure to pack, pack enough food and, and carbohydrate heavy food for, for that exercise.
1: Yeah. Because at that, in that case, it's really about uh, keeping your blood sugar in control as opposed to, you know, say, worrying about optimizing your 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 net weight gain or loss for the season, right? And I think that, you know, riding a low blood sugar or bonking in winter sports, you know, it actually can be dangerous, right? Because you get caught out in the cold and holy cow. And I'm thinking about, you know, situations where you are doing something like, you know, um, you know, riding your fat bike in the snow and you're getting out uh, a far distance or backcountry skiing, et cetera, right? There is uh, nutritionally some safety that needs to bear in mind by being able to still think about your surroundings and keeping safe.
0: Yeah, exactly. When it rains at ports, it's like, that's the day that you happen to, you know, get a flat tire or, you know, you get stuck in a, you know, tree rut when you're out skiing and then you're like, oh, I wish I had some food to fuel me so I could get out of this, get out of this mess.
1: Yeah and 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 also you know you've probably assaulted too it's like you just seem to feel like you run through energy faster right and you might have like the the 10 extra pounds on your body but you're not tapping into it because as you start to shiver as you start to get cold your body is shifting preferentially towards carbohydrate usage
0: interesting stuff, Alan. You're always you're always a wealth of knowledge. And, and the last thing I want to ask you is what's on the limb dinner plate for the holidays? What's the one dish that you look forward to the most that you wouldn't eat at other points during the year?
1: Well, I'll say this. I'll, I'll eat this any time of the year. But what's normal for me is I usually go back to my mom's in Los Angeles for the holidays, which is very weird because as soon as you land in LA, you're like, ah, it's not Christmas. you know? It's not Thanksgiving. It feels so weird. It's so warm. But we always go out and get sholong bao, which is this little juicy pork soup dumpling, right? And it's basically what happens is you make this beautiful super broth, you gelatinize it, and you put that gelatin into the meat of a dumpling so that when you steam or cook the dumpling, you get a puddle of perfect soup inside that dumpling, right? Wow. It's freaking incredible and I usually find myself primarily eating this stuff over the holidays. It is the best freaking thing ever. You know, I think this holiday season with the COVID, I don't know. I, I, I my mindset, I think like many people, is I'm not sure what to do. And maybe that's okay. maybe, you know, this is the year that the holidays get a little canceled. Maybe this is the year that I sit at home and I try to replicate the perfect sholong bao.
0: Well, maybe, uh, maybe I'll do that as well up here with my wife because it looks like, uh, yeah, we're not going to be heading out to Oregon to visit my family. So we need something to, to occupy us during the holidays and we'll be playing plenty of card games and puzzles. So we'll, uh, spend a lot of time in the kitchen as well. Let's make,
1: let's make the hybrid sholong bao. Let's make a ravioli, but then we'll stuff it with this gelatinized meat and see if like the puddle of soup can be inside the ravioli, and then we'll put that in soup. So it'll be like soup in the ravioli, and soup. It'll be like very meta, very Ooh, meta. Wow!
0: <laughs> layers on layers. Well, <laughs> yeah. Very me meta over, dumpling. Send me over a recipe, and I, and I'll and I'll try and give it a try. At okay, this awesome. holiday season.
1: Yeah. Other things to consider for the winter. You know, we sleep more. That's fine. Get lots of sleep. Make sure that you know there's less sun, so get your vitamin D in as well. This is what I tell all the athletes. A little bit of extra vitamin C, you know, can't hurt, but lots of, you know, fruits and vegetables will also get you that vitamin C and go easy on yourself. This is a strange time.
0: Yeah. Well, Alan, always a lot of wisdom. So thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to to you sending over that recipe. Okay. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Alan. Well, I'm very pleased to announce my next guest, Chris Cosentino. I believe I pronounced that correct. Is that right, Chris? You did. Yes, it is. Yeah, you're a celebrity chef. You're winner of Top Chef Masters and you're a competitor on one of my favorite shows growing up. I don't have a TV anymore, but The Next Iron Chef used to be one of my favorite shows on the Food Network and probably watching that show is what inspired me to get into into cooking and especially eating you know different and exotic foods. So thanks for taking the time.
2: Oh, thank you for having me, Ian.
0: Well, just kind of to, you know, people will probably know you from your your success in the kitchen but when did you come to to fall in love with with cycling and riding a bike
2: you know it's, it's pretty funny I actually started riding a i started riding a bike in my second year of college uh, and that was in 92 and I started you know mountain biking because that feeling of gliding in between trees on single track it was very reminiscent of skateboarding it had the the excitement of skateboarding and and skiing and you just It just made sense. And then I had a really uh, heavy knee accident in the kitchen in my senior year. And everything was rebuilt inside my knee. And the doctor said, you know, you need to ride a bike every day if you want to be able to function normally moving forward. So and then that was it. You know, 94, I was on a bike every day, whether it was a stationary bike in the house or I was just cruising down the street. And then it just turned into, you know the rest of my life you know it was part of every day regime
0: well before we we started recording we were just you know briefly talking about the the relationship and kind of the you know the pros and cons of food and and endurance sports and kind of this very fine balance between eating enough not eating too much you know you're at the end of the spectrum where you have the ability and you know the access to cook amazing food where do you kind of see the relationship between food and not necessarily performance, but just endurance sports? Where do you see those crossing?
2: Yeah, you know, I think there's so much that goes on. I mean, food can, can make or break your race, it, but it can also make or break your training. And I think so many people, you know, have demonized food when it comes to training and eating very little and um, eating only certain foods and staying away from certain things. And then there's the, you know, when you're on the bike, eating as many calories as you can, as you go. So it's kind of a, it's a catch 22 world that I I think has a a lot of conversation pieces. You know, it's kind of like what we were talking about prior to like, right before you hit the record button, that, uh, that thought process that you're not supposed to eat a lot. Also that when you're training healthy food isn't, doesn't taste good. Right. I mean, how many, how many times do you think about that? Like, is this healthy meal that I'm going to have taste delicious or is it just going to be the fuel that I need to keep going and training?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, from, from personal experience, you know, I will call out an event like so the 2018, I did the, the tour de France and I was so focused on my diet for the months leading up. to I was eating extremely healthy and my wife was over visiting for a training camp and I was like, no, I can't eat that. Like I got to eat this. And I, and I was so healthy. My body was so efficient and, you know, I was so lean and everything was like going so well. But you know the last couple of days of the tour, I was like all right we're going to be in Paris, like what do I want to eat in paris like let 's go out and you know eat all the things that I you know have been you know restricting from my diet and we went out and you know ate everything that I could at a patisserie and all this you know delicious food and while it satisfied that taste, I felt terrible because you know my body hadn't been been used to it, and I think there is also a you know, a correlation between what your body becomes used to. And maybe you've noticed that as well. And especially when you look at, you know, something like sodium content and while you're exercising, you're taking in a lot of sodium, but you're using it. And all of a sudden, if you're not exercising and you're eating a bunch of, you know, rich food and it's, you know, French cuisine and it's, you know, loaded with butter and salt, you know, you feel that right away.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I, I can say that when I quit... You know, I raced ultra-endurance 24 hours solo on a single speed, um, and that was my category of choice. And I noticed dramatically when I stopped racing full-time and how much my body shifted with food. Like instantly, you know, weight comes back on because you're not, you know, training and racing and really thinking everything through. And I had an adverse gut reaction to all that, you know, change of diet. Yeah. And that's when I really, when I came, when I was racing towards the tail end of my racing career, I wasn't eating, you know, gels and things of that nature anymore. I stopped. Um, I was eating peanut butter and bacon sandwiches on holy bread, or I would just take a banana or I would take dates stuffed with almonds. You know, really, I changed everything because I noticed that I wasn't I wasn't as efficient as I was previously, but I also it was like things that I was craving was flavor and 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 salt in a different way or texture, and you know there was a bike race where I literally ate fried chicken in the middle of the race.
0: Well, if you can if you can stomach it, then yeah, why not?
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it's it wasn't like overindulging. It was just like this is great. It was fried. It had crispy. It was moist. It had protein, it sustained. And I think that's a thing that I learned as I was going on was I basically sought out what my body craved instead of what I always thought I was supposed to have.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a big a big thing in, in the endurance world when there's kind of these these stereotypes or traditions of, you know, you eat X, Y, and Z. And if you're not eating that, you know, you're not being, you're not perceived as being professional. But at the end of the day, you know, every body type is is different. You know, for example, in in the 2018 tour, I never once ate pasta. You know, I'm just at home, I don't cook pasta, you know, very often. You know, but I just relied on on different sort, forms of carbohydrate, you know, quinoa, rice, you know, oatmeal. Um, yeah. and, I, and I think that's something that people need to understand is that there's different foods that work for you. I mean, if instead of a gel, you want to take fried chicken and that works for you, it works for you. And you have to be able to, you know, stand up and say, Hey, this is, this is what I use at home. And I think that's one of the biggest misnomers is people go to an event and they start eating food. That's something they're not used to, you know, that at home, they eat something that they have in their kitchen and they go to an event and all of a sudden they're like, Oh, this is my race food, but they've never practiced with it or never experimented with it in training or at home.
2: Yeah. And I mean, again, then you're going back to a shift of your gut and what it's taking and how it's going to react to it. And, And I think, you know, that holiday break, like you were saying, right, is right. You know, Thanksgiving through what was that for you? Did you go Thanksgiving through New Year's or was it like a week or two before that? When was your when was your ramp down before you started ramping up again?
0: It was normally, um, yeah, more around kind of like the Christmas holiday period, you know, through Thanksgiving, it's, you know, very short, you know, it's one or two days. And ideally you could still, you know, maybe train prior to Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving morning, but Christmas, like kind of the week of, you know, that Christmas, December 20th till New Year's, um, it's kind of a time that a lot of athletes will kind of back things off. You know, they're going to be maybe not this year, but in years past, they're at, they're at home with families and, you know, there's so many more activities going on than just a single, a single day that it's, it becomes very difficult to try and focus on your diet over, you know, that period of time.
2: And and I think this is like a perfect time to, for everybody They you're do you're letting your guard down and people are starting to eat again. Um, and I think that's, that's as a chef and, you know, and, and racing back in the day, I, that was the difficult thing for me is for me now is seeing people say, you know, what? I'm only really allowed to eat in this time and that's kind of a for me that's sad (laughs) because I want people to feel comfortable I want people to feel good about what they eat on a regular basis and and I think there's that shift that can happen in diet and foods and it's really understanding how much when where and how and picking the right the right food that the body needs but also at the same time having great flavor and I think like you were mentioning salt and how you're using it when you're racing you know there's there's a percentage of salt in uh, in everybody's body. It's about 2.5% in your saliva. So if you can match that with your food, that means you're not over-salting, the body's not getting too much. It's little things like that, that I think would benefit across the board when it comes to flavor and daily foods, acid and herbs before salt. And then again, you're working within those confines of being a little healthier, you know? But I, I, I think... People need to really refresh that that mindset when it comes to the eating, you know, and and balance it a little bit more.
0: Yeah, when I you know I'm in a unique position now where I've you know been a pro cyclist. I'm still riding and training, but I'm, I'm my time is more limited now to actually train. So I'm not burning as much, but I'm eating the way I want to, and I'm realizing, oh well, like my body has kind of stabilized, and I keep more or less a constant weight. You know, I don't check it all the time, so I'm not as obsessed with it. But i I feel good. I eat what I want. If I go out to dinner or my wife cooks something that you know I wouldn't necessarily cook, I'll you know I'll eat it because I'm like, hey, this is this is delicious and it tastes a lot better than you know rice and chicken with ketchup on top. And,
2: <laughs> <laughs> was that your food? Please don't tell me that it was your race
0: food. <laughs> I mean, oftentimes after post race, that was a very common meal that you know the the staff could cook on a bus. It was you know they could prepare rice in a rice cooker and they'd have you know canned chicken or you know canned tuna or something um not necessarily the most you know it's a very white meal but it is you know in that situation on a team bus you know fairly easy to to prepare and and eat um but i'm a big ketchup user when it comes to yeah any any flavorless food ketchup is my my sauce of choice
2: yeah i mean you know as for somebody like I think about when you guys are getting off the bus and like all these really unique regions that you're in, right? Like you're racing in so many beautiful places that have abundance of amazing products. Like, and you know, oftentimes I was like, man, what would it be like to be a tour chef, right? Like on the cooking for everybody. And then I like, and then I hear something like that and I'm like, wow, that definitely doesn't sound like a fun meal to make everybody. No. But you know, it's <laughs> you you know, but I think about it like, you know, you're in Spain. I wouldn't I would see all those beautiful tin fish high in omega threes and, and really good oils and fats that could be put on rice for you guys. And you know, there's all this stuff all across, you know, fruits and veg that just that sing for that, you know for that recovery that are just right at the fingertips when you're, when you're at all these events. Are those things that you guys had access to or no?
0: It is. And it, and you know, not every race did we have a team chef. Um, you know, the grand tours we would have, we would have a chef and they would prepare meals. Different teams have different, you know, theories and ideologies on what they want to feed their riders. Um, the best chefs I ever worked with were at, at team sky and they both, both chefs had worked on both on street carts, you know, food trucks, but also in Michelin star restaurants. And they were, at times, you know, the, the management of the team's like, Hey, we need, you need to tone down the flavor. Cause this is like too, it's too exotic, but they, you know, they were willing to go out and you know, I'd, I, like I said, I love cooking. I would ask them in the morning, like, Hey, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? And the chef would say, I don't know yet because I'm going to drive to the local market, see what's, what looks good. I'm also going to see what the weather looks like. You know, if you prepare a, a watermelon gazpacho and it's, pouring rain and cold. Well, that's not going to be, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't fit with the, with the environment, but you know, if it's a cold, wet day and they make a, you know, coconut curry soup, that's going to be eaten up because that's what the body's craving. So there are different, different races, you know, different regions, different teams. They do have, you know, the flexibility to incorporate the local flavor. And I think that's something that, you know, as a rider who's, you know, loves food is incredibly important. And also to, you know, I had forget, it was at the Giro one year, we had, um, I had black garlic for the first time and I was blown away and I was like, wow. And I've since have found some up uh, across the border in Canada, up in Quebec, they have a pretty big operation of black garlic. And so every time I'm up there, I buy some and bring it back. And yeah, one of the most delicious things I have ever eaten and I I love garlic, but the slow roasted black garlic is phenomenal.
2: You know, um, you can make that actually in a rice cooker.
0: Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've looked, looked up the uh, how to do it because my wife and I grow a bunch of garlic. So I think next year's harvest, we're going to put some in a rice cooker and let it, let it go.
2: Yeah, my, uh, one of my buddies in San Francisco just showed me how to make that. And it was, it was kind of an eye opener because when it first came out, it was extremely expensive per pound. And uh, <laughs> we all wanted to use it. So we ended up having to learn how to make it on our own which made it a lot more fun because we were using local garlic.
0: Well, as this is a as this is a holiday episode and I'm going to put a challenge out to you because you've been on Iron Chef, which for those of you who don't <laughs> know is a is a TV show on the Food Network where a secret ingredient is given to you and you have to come up with a recipe or multiple dishes with that ingredient in the recipe. So, a holiday dish with black garlic. Let let's hear it. Holiday what are you going to prepare? Black
2: garlic. Oh, man. <laughs> um so I think one of, the, one of the ingredients that I think always gets a really bum wrap is Brussels sprouts, right? Yes. Everybody, they, they get a bum wrap. So for me, I like to take them and turn them into the star, right? Because everybody's like, oh God, Brussels sprouts. I remember when we were kids, they were horrible. They were never treated well. Um, they're ultimately beautiful little mini cabbage, right? And so many people take them now and shave them raw into salads. What I like to do is get them on the stalk hole, right? Okay. And take your stock, pick off the leaves that are in between. Um, are you growing them in your garden, Ian,
0: by any chance? My wife's father has a bunch of Brussels sprouts that we're going to go pick up in, in a couple of days. So, yes, okay. we do have Brussels sprouts on the stock.
2: Okay, cool. So this is actually, there's, there's cool, something cool for you to learn about too. Uh, inside the Brussels sprout stalk, you know, there's those big leaves that stick out in between all the individual Brussels sprouts. Yep. Save those save those leaves. Traditionally, when you get Brussels sprout stalks, all those leaves are gone and they pitch them, they till them back into the soil. But actually, they're a really beautiful leaf if you blanch them and serve them just with a little bit of butter. And that's something that you can do is mash out your black garlic in a little bit of butter, Right do the leaves with butter, uh, blanch, and then butter them with the, with the black garlic butter and a little bit of lemon juice. And then you just it's kind of, they're, they're super delicious. Or you can braise them out like collard greens, Ooh. right? That's those leaves that most farmers just throw away. That right? sounds so delicious. Then you're talking about, you're doubling down on your Brussels sprouts. So you have this stalk, you trim off the bottom, so it's all clean. Now get a, the tallest pot you have for blanching, put a little salt in the water, now you hold the one end of the stock into the water and you're blanching the Brussels sprouts on the stock. Okay? Yep. So think about find the biggest platter you have and make sure the stock fits on the platter before you start blanching. or you gonna have a are you gonna have a mess? <laughs> then once 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 I blanch one side of the stock, and that's usually gonna be at least half, right? Then I'm gonna flip it over and I'm gonna blanch the other side of the stock while holding it straight up. So now I have Perfectly blanched. I'd say it's about six and a half minutes per, per side of the stock. Okay. And then I'm gonna take them out and I'm gonna put it on a sheet tray. My oven's been preheated to five hundred degrees. And I'm gonna drizzle it with olive oil and I'm gonna season it with whatever spice that I may want. Salt, pepper, you can throw some rosemary in the middle of it, right? Like little spindles. Throw it in the oven at five hundred degrees. Now while that's cooking, we're gonna make a bagna cauda. So you, I'm sure you've written in, in the south of France, right? Yep. Okay, so bagna Cauda is usually, its translation is hot bath, right? It's traditionally uh, garlic, butter, anchovy, olive oil, lemon juice. So instead of using the traditional garlic, we'll use black garlic. Okay, you're going to mash it in a mortar and pestle. And then you're going to put it in with some mashed anchovy, some salt. And you're going to melt a little butter in there with it. Then you're going to add the olive oil and then do lemon zest and lemon juice. So then you take this and you can, you can keep it warm, right? And it'll sit like in a little fondue pot on the table. You know, the little candle under it is bubbling warm. Yep. So then you take the Brussels sprout stock out, put it on your platter, and you put it in the center of the table. And the guests take a fork and a knife and cut them off one at a time and dip them in their bagnacata
0: wow i am I'm impressed um yeah for for those of you listening there was no um <laughs> there was no there was no plan I didn't give you any time to you know tell you what the ingredients were gonna be, but that sounds delicious and also sounds fun and I think that's one of the cool things about food is that you've just taken Brussels sprouts, which like you said oftentimes can be the dish that everyone you know had, doesn't go back for seconds, and you've made it an interactive part of the meal that people are sitting around you know cutting up the Brussels sprouts. And they've maybe a lot of people probably have never seen Brussels sprouts on the stock. And all of a sudden, yeah, you have this this interactive food that is unique, different, and delicious with our with our secret ingredient, black garlic. So that is uh, that that sounds delicious. I, I'm gonna try that this holiday season.
2: So I think the cool part about it is is now there's two things to carve on the table. Somebody carves the turkey or somebody carves the Brussels sprouts. And if you're a vegetarian, then it just becomes like the main centerpiece. Of that vegetarian version of Thanksgiving.
0: I love it. Chris, thank you so much for sharing that recipe. We'll, um, yeah, I'll have to make up, make up some notes to add to the, to the description below for the podcast because, um, uh. yeah, that was, that was phenomenal. I'm, I'm very impressed. You're, you truly are a a master chef.
2: I will send you the recipe so you can post it when it, when the, uh, when it comes out.
0: Love that. that sounds fantastic.
2: <laughs> Thank you. I, uh, happy to be here and uh, looking forward to
0: more conversations in the future. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. Well, there we have it, folks. Another episode of Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. I hope you enjoyed today's show and my conversations with Dr. Alan Lim and Chef Chris Cosentino. You can find in the show notes below the recipe that Chris shared with you today It is a fabulous way to cook Brussels sprouts and get some greens on your table this holiday season. Next week, I will be joined by Colin Strickland talking about the latest Wahoo Frontiers film with Colin that'll be launching on December 26th. So mark your calendars. And with that folks, myself and everyone at Wahoo would like to wish you a very happy, safe and healthy holiday season. And I will catch you all right back here next week on Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo.